0: Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at onScript Podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash onscript.
1: Welcome back everyone. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from the UK. I'm co-host with Matt Bates, Associate Professor of New Testament at Quincy University in Illinois. And Drew Johnson, Associate Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies at the King's College in New York City. Before getting started, I want to thank all of you for listening, and especially our supporters. If you feel able to give just $5 a month to keep OnScript going, it would be an enormous help to us. We've, uh, we've got some exciting plans in the works that I can't talk about yet, but we could use some some more financial backing to get there. And thank you so much to those of you who have helped or who currently give, uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, if you, if you are interested in giving, please go to onscript.study forward slash donate. We do occasional book giveaways to random donors as a way of saying thank you and, uh, you'll just have a special place, um, in the, the world to come. Also, could some of you do us a favor and give us a rating on iTunes? For some reason, we've got a fair number of listeners, and I think we've got two reviews on iTunes, uh, at least at the time of this recording. And I, th- <laughs> I think I know both of the people, so uh, which I appreciate um, both of those reviewers. But I know there's a lot of you who listen, and if like one percent of you could give a review, that would quintuple our current ratings. All right, finally, if you could sign up for our mailing list at onscript.study, you'll be in the running for special offers and updates from us uh, on occasion, and that way we can keep in touch with you about what's happening around OnScript and behind the scenes a little bit. Go to the the website, and there's a mailing sign-up form that'll pop up if you stay on the page for a few seconds, uh, or it's on the right-hand side, I think. All right, Drew Johnson takes the lead in this episode, so here we go. How blessed are those who know thy need of God. How blessed are the sorrowful.
2: They shall find consolation. How blessed are those of gentle spirit! They shall have the earth for their possession! How blessed are those who hunger
1: and thirst to see right prevail! They shall be satisfied! How blessed are those whose
2: hearts are pure! They shall
1: see God!
2: Speak! Quiet, Mom! Well, I can't hear a thing. Let's go to
1: stoning. You can go to a stoning any time. Oh,
2: come on, Brian.
1: Will you be quiet?
2: Could you be quiet, please? What was that? I don't know. It's too busy talking a big nose. I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers.
1: Oh, what's so special about the cheesemakers?
0: Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products.
1: You hear that? Blessed are the Greek. The Greek. Apparently he's going to inherit the earth. Did anyone catch his name? Oh, it's the meek!
2: Blessed are the meek. Oh, that's nice in it. I'm glad they're getting something because they have hell of a time. This is Drew Johnson from the King's College, but I'm presently this year in the University of St Andrews in Scotland. today we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Even under the most superficial reading, the Sermon poses problems for us. I mean, Jesus actually says, pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin. And if we take that literally, shouldn't all Christian men be cyclopsed? He does literally say, do not swear an oath. But that might be read to mean that Christians can no longer testify in a court of law. The Sermon on the Mount provides very steep ethical teaching, and it forces more questions than it answers. But today I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan T. Pennington of Southern Seminary to talk about his new book about how we should read the Sermon on the Mount and what it teaches. Welcome, Dr. Pennington. Jonathan, good to have you here on OnScript.
0: Thank you very much, Drew.
2: And uh, so how did you feel about uh, that version of the Sermon on the Mount?
0: Yes, I'm glad that uh, we get to read and we don't have to hear Jesus from many, many yards away and potentially misunderstand him. But I'm a big Python fan as well and always find that one a very funny one.
2: Okay, we'll we'll come back to that scene again when we get to our speed round questions. All right. Uh, First, let me tell everybody who we're talking today. This is Jonathan T. Pennington. He's an associate professor of New Testament interpretation and the director of research doctoral studies at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I don't know if I said that correctly. Close enough. Uh, He has a, a bachelor's of arts in history from Northern Illinois University a Master of Divinity uh, from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. That's TEDS to you and me. Uh, and his PhD is from the University of St. Andrews, Scotland, St. Mary's College, where I am sitting right now, uh, where he wrote his thesis entitled Heaven and Earth and the Gospel of Matthew under the supervision of a few blokes you might have heard of, Richard Bauckham and Philip Essler. He's published a variety of articles and reviews and books, uh, and you might have read some of his books, if you, certainly if you've worked on the Gospel of Matthew. Heaven and Earth in the Gospel of Matthew, The Cosmology of New Testament Theology by T.N.T. Clark, his widely used book, Reading the Gospels Wisely, a Narrative and Theological Introduction by Baker Academic. He's currently working on a revised pillar commentary on the volume uh, on, on Matthew, I guess the old one uh, went out of favor, or something bad happened, or I don't know. <laughs> you can explain that later. And then uh, the book we're talking about today is The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing by Baker a- Academic. Um, thanks for being with us, and maybe you could just take a few moments and tell us about you've clearly got a strong trajectory in the book of Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you're focusing in on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, what's kind of spurred that interest? And maybe you could sum up the book in a few sentences for us.
0: Sure. Thanks again for having me. I'm glad to talk about it. Yeah, it's been a delight for the last uh, 15 plus years of getting to really dedicate a lot of my energy to studying Matthew and teaching it. And here at Southern, uh, I have the opportunity to teach it in many different uh, formats and both in English and in Greek. But about ten years ago, I also started teaching an elective just on the Sermon on the Mount, and I, you know, looking back, I had no idea what I was getting into. I think well, I thought well, I know a little bit about Matthew, and I could probably do a class on the Sermon on the Mount. So I started teaching this modular Sermon on the Mount class, and really quickly, very quickly, I realized, wow, I don't know really anything about the Sermon. This is a very complex issue. I didn't realize its influence throughout the history of interpretation. I mean, the Sermon. Uh, has been the most studied, most preached upon, most commented upon uh, text throughout the church's history from the mm-hmm. earliest days. And I didn't realize that. And I also didn't realize that I knew nothing about ethics and that the Sermon on the Mount is really essential to the to the field of Christian ethics and really more broadly. So I started teaching it and started researching more in depth and uh so 10 years later and five years of writing, uh, this is what came out of it. And there are, of course, quite a few steps along the way of some pivotal moments. But that's how it all got started. It was from really just kind of blindly stepping into teaching on the sermon.
2: Uh, Could you just sum up for our audience the the kind of main thrust? Because I think most people will go like, oh, yeah, Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, I I know that. Blessed are the meek. Uh, And I think the the poetic nature and how it reads, especially in the English translations, kind of fools us uh, into how Mm. complex what's going on uh, in the text is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um – yeah, thanks. That's a good question. So maybe I could share a couple of those pivotal moments in my own development of thinking about the sermon, and that'll kind of get me to what I am particularly arguing in this book. Um, the book is a commentary on the sermon, but it's actually half commentary, half um, presentation or argument for a certain way to read the sermon. So I'll get to that here in a moment. But some some pivotal moments for me as I began to teach, um, I mentioned already that I realized I didn't really have much education in ethics. And so I began to read in the field of ethics and very quickly realized that I would put myself in the camp of a virtue ethicist. That is that um, I believe that the Bible itself is teaching a virtue ethics, and I think a virtue ethics approach makes the most sense of our human existence and and scripture. And by that, I mean particularly that God cares most about who we are as people and that he wants us to, to develop to be a certain kind of people who then through wisdom and practice act in certain ways that accord with his nature and coming kingdoms. That's how I would kind of describe a Christian virtue ethic. And so that was one pivotal point is just sort of starting to educate myself in ethics. And then another one was starting to just wrestle with what that word you already quoted, the Beatitudes, whether it's cheesemakers or whoever is blessed, but it's actually trying to figure out uh, what actually does that word mean, the Greek word makarios. And I pretty quickly came to have a lot of hesitations about translating it as blessed. Um, and as I've continued to study uh, that issue, and there's a whole chapter in the book on just what the word makarios means, uh, I read Everything I could find on it. And it took some years of thinking, uh, but I finally felt like I came, started to cross a line of understanding what maybe is going on with that complicated word. And it I realized that it's uh, some ways isn't as complicated. The problem is that it's an English problem, is that we don't really have a good word that describes this idea that it is a state of human flourishing. And Mm. it's been very interesting as I have traveled all over the country and the world, really even talking about the Sermon on the Mount and talking about this issue. I always ask people who are bilingual uh, what their own translation of Mm. the Beatitudes says. And I found without exception in a wide variety of European and non-European languages that every language besides English makes a clear distinction That I think the Bible itself makes between a blessing, which is something that God himself enacts life and gives life to people versus a description of someone else who's in a state of flourishing, what we could call a macarism. And in English, we've only come up with one word to describe both of those blessed or sometimes older translations, you'll see happy. Um, But in every other language, and I know you're, you speak some other languages, Drew, I bet you can confirm this in Spanish and some others, but it's clear in Hebrew, it's clear in Greek, it's clear in Latin that you have very distinct words for these two different concepts. And for me, what I came to realize is that what the Beatitudes are about are not about blessings from God. In the first instance, they are descriptions of what the fullness of life or human flourishing looks like.
2: Yeah, I want to come back to those in a moment. I think it's important that we distinguish cuz you what you do in this book is you make a lot of linguistic distinctions. I'm not a huge fan of of people who try to make too much out of word studies, but I think I you, Yeah, you did the exact right thing here. You you looked at ashray and barach and you you thought about how those are parlayed into the Greek and then how we think about those today and I think I agree, uh, you know, like Psalm one, um, it's, uh, I had a Hebrew professor that would always say it's, it's, oh, happy is the man, but even that's not right. You know? And I think that's right that we're missing something, uh, in our vocabulary, um, and I often challenge students to I just say if, you know when you say bless you to somebody like wh- what do you even mean by that what do yeah. you what do you think it means I'm, I'm like if you want the Hebrew way you can't just say it you have to give them five dollars or something right right uh, nice. so that's the difference between uh, flourishing and blessing I do um, before we jump into that I, I do want to talk about some other big picture issues because you spend quite a bit of time at the beginning uh, orienting the reader to the encyclopedias of the ideal uh, reader or ideal listener of this story. Um, You say on page 35, quote, The sermon was birthed from the union of two parents who had themselves already been joined together in the Second Temple period. So uh, who are those two parents that you're talking about there? And why does it matter for the reader?
0: yeah good thanks so i got I got off a rabbit trail there on beatitudes it's a it's a big one an important one and I never got back to what I was saying so thanks for redirecting me in that way um yeah so the big point of the book is that the best reading of the sermon I think comes from paying attention to what the sermon would have evoked in its first hearers and by saying that, I don't mean that it isn't also directly speaking to us today. I'm not approaching Holy Scriptures if it's bound by the past or something. But I do think there are ways in which the sermon presents itself, as actually all of early Christianity does, that we often have not picked up on. And you've identified what I'm arguing particularly, that, uh, Christianity, Jesus' teachings and early Christianity, uh, is in the language of Greek largely. And that is a function of something that had already happened in Jewish history that's very, very important, and that is that the faith of Israel and the Hebrew scriptures and the understanding of God's work in the world that the Jewish people had um, had already come into contact with this large Greek and then Greek and Roman culture, and I don't believe that it corrupted it in any ways but Whenever you go from one language and one culture to another, that forms the way you talk about things and, and causes an interaction with certain ideas from another culture that um, make made the Jewish people articulate themselves in certain ways. And so my suggestion is that early Christianity and the Sermon on the Mount is a great example that really sits at the nexus of these two worlds, the Jewish story and particularly the wisdom literature aspect of, of the Jewish story, so the Psalms and Proverbs and Job and others, and this culture that Judaism finds itself in, which is a very Hellenized or Greek culture, which has its own set of uh, ideas and values, and particularly the idea that I'm highlighting is philosophy, and the idea that philosophy was for the purpose of human flourishing. And you see this, of course, in the Greek tradition, particularly easily with Socrates and Plato and maybe especially Aristotle. And my point is that these are not enemies. The Greek philosophical uh, system that emphasizes that virtue leads to flourishing, that's not an enemy with Judaism because that's actually the story of the Bible as well. That as we align ourselves with God and live wisely, uh, in a Psalm 1 kind of way, that actually will result in shalom. And that mm-hmm. the Bible itself is presenting a vision of how to experience true human flourishing by orienting oneself to God. And I know you agree with that, and we've talked about these things, um and we've both read Yoram Hazoni's book on the Hebrew Bible side of it, Um but I think it's also true in the New Testament as well that the Bible is offering us true human flourishing by aligning ourselves with Him. So my argument of the book is, if you understand those two contexts and how they overlap with each other, and they're already overlapping with each other, it makes a lot of sense of what Jesus himself is teaching, including in a place like the Sermon on the Mount. So, is that what you're getting yeah. at? Is that no, I think you're... that's
2: exactly what we're getting at. And I, I think, you know, for our listeners, uh, many of them will have some biblical studies training, but for those maybe who haven't heard it, shalom, uh, we have the same problem with shalom, right? We, we render it right. into peace often. And of course, for those of us that were born past the 60s, Peace mm-hmm. essentially means nonviolence, non
0: war. Right. Or shalom, inner tranquility. Maybe yeah, just yeah, inner, ex- yeah,
2: exactly. But it's, it, it's a, a particular state and it's, uh, and sometimes individual as well, where shalom, uh, I mean, how would you best render shalom? Um, besides flourishing uh, human flourishing for i human mean flourishing. i think
0: that i think human flour- it's
2: all human flourishing right everything uh, yeah. but do, do you yeah. ever worry that this this phrase human flourishing yes. uh, okay is going to get overused <laughs> or kind of loses its uh, purchase
0: um, yeah i do i feel I do. like you in have, fact, to
2: have another another phrase kind of queued up for when that one starts dying exactly
0: so. right believe me i'm very aware of that in fact by the time the book came out Um, you know, as you well know, when you write a book, it's actually done a long time before it comes out. And the ideas are probably many years before that. Right. And I'm not saying I made up the term, but I mean, I've read Miroslav Wolf and a lot of the people on this. Um, but by the time the book came out, I had already begun to see the word lots of places a lot more frequently, it seemed to me. Mm -hmm. And then an early pre-publication review even said something about, uh, tapping into the current interest in human flourishing and you know just one of my horcruxes died you know when he said that but you know part of me died in the sense of like that makes it sound like i'm just like ripping out this popular level book just because i heard people talking about flourishing right And, and not that i need to be the originator that's not my point my point is i i think this is a big deep human civilization concept and uh when it and i'm glad to help you know bring it into our current discussion, but as with anything, words get cheap, you know, over time. And so I don't know what the next, next phrase would be, you know, do you yeah. have a suggestion?
2: I, I don't, you know, I was thinking while I was reading it, but, um, I'll have to, I'll have to think more. It's it's just a trappy word. And you feel like once you say human flourishing, you can't think of anything else. Right. Um, I do want to ask you about this philosophical tradition, especially the Aristotelian uh, philosophical tradition of virtue, um, that most people will think to, I mean, most people who have studied virtue epistemology and virtue uh, ethics, th- they're going to think, OK, that whole project is hopelessly locked into individualism. It's about you as a rational individual kind of figuring out the via media, avoiding the extremes and finding your way through to what's ethical. Um, but you say that righteousness is not an individual sport in the in the Sermon on the Mount, if I could say it that way, but it's communal so uh, even, even the title, Human Flourishing, I, I wonder if it could be read uh, two ways, Human Individual Flourishing and Humanities mm-hmm. Flourishing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how is Jesus' use of flourishing different than that of uh, virtue ethics?
0: Yeah. well, wow. Lots, lots in that. Yeah. Sorry. And I'm happy for the ambiguity of human flourishing. In fact, I think both of those are true. It is about mm-hmm. the individual and it is about the individual in society. I said there were some pivot moments, um, in my own study to come to this point, And I'm ha- happy to highlight another one. And he does appear in the book a little bit, and that's uh, Walter Wolterstorff's, um, mm-hmm. uh, books on justice and, uh, And writes. I remember so distinctly. I'm sure you have some experience like this. That sometimes you're sitting somewhere reading something, and your mind explodes, like Mm -hmm. because some connections are made. I remember as a young, you know, my 20s, reading a lot of C.S. Lewis and having those moments. Well, I I had one of those moments several years ago when I was sitting, and it was I remember it was a December. I was sitting in the library. I stumbled across some of Waldorf's books and was reading them, and he discusses the difference between Uh, a Christian ethical view and an Aristotelian view. And it was such, it came at such a crucial moment in my understanding because I had really come to see that. I think the Bible shares the same engine with the Greek philosophical tradition of virtue is necessary to lead to human flourishing, particularly virtue understood as being a whole person Um, A teleos Mm -hmm. person, or in Greek, the teleos on air, which is language we'll see Paul uses as well, uh, evokes this Greek tradition of being a a fully human by experiencing, by pursuing the life of wise virtue. So I remember reading him, and he makes a really strong argument. I think it's in Justice. I can't remember just now which book it is, that the problem with the Aristotelian eudaimonistic tradition, so the eudaimonia idea of Aristotle – is that the reason it's ultimately sub-Christian is because it does focus just on the individual ultimately. Now, that doesn't mean that Socrates, especially Plato and Aristotle, weren't aware of the polis of the city. I mean, they were. And, you know, for, for Plato, the Republic, a big part of it is that the way to create a just society is in fact that will result in flourishing is for the king mm-hmm. himself to be a philosopher, right? And for Aristotle, from what I understand is that the, uh, the the king needs to be influenced by philosophers like Aristotle's influence on Alexander the Great. So it's not like there it's purely individual in a modern sense of that. But Voltaire's argument is that that Shaloming the Earth. Um, that spreading life and flourishing to all people is core to the biblical idea of what God's work in the world is. Mm-hmm. And of course, I wouldn't have disagreed with that before, but there was something that clicked for me that was really challenging to recognize, yeah, this is not just about me experiencing human flourishing. This is God's work. This is a great metaphor to describe God's work in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh Holter sort of describes it as Aaronization, which is a bit of a mouthful, but that's the Greek word for, uh, peace or shalom. I, I like shaloming, although maybe it kind of sounds like a Yiddish word or something. I don't know. Shaloming, shaloping, or shaloming, yeah, I don't sleeping. know what. Um, and then one time, famously, when I was trying to talk about Walter Wolterstorff in a video lecture I was giving, instead of a I actually said urinization. So I'm a little, <laughs> little gun-shy of using that term as well, the urinization of the world. So all that to say, uh, I'm just going to stick with human flourishing, but I do mean by it that I think God's work in the world can be described as uh him uh, spreading life uh, through his people, which then when you step back, you realize that's the kingdom of God. That's the reign of God. I mean, that's this biblical message that biblical theologians and others have been for a long time talking about. And Jesus himself, of course, this is his message, mm-hmm. that it's the kingdom of God is coming to the world. And what is the kingdom of God? Well, all you have to do is look at both Isaiah and other images from the Old Testament and look at what Jesus actually does. He heals people. He Emphasizes relationships with each other being ones of love and peace and forgiveness. I mean, that's the main theme of Matthew. I think ethically is mercy towards one another is at the core of what it means to be a disciple. So all of that is actually exactly, um, what shaloming would look like or Aaronization or flourishing, spreading through society. If I might say one more thing along these lines, one of the things that comes up in gospel studies a lot of times is the, uh, paradoxical or perplexing relationship of the synoptic tradition, Matthew, Mark, and Luke with John, particularly Mm. on this issue of what is Jesus' message because the synoptics, there's no doubt that Jesus' message is the kingdom of God, or in Matthew's terms the kingdom of heaven, but for John even though kingdom of God appears a few times it's eternal life, right? And Ellen Cherry and some other people that I've read, again there were some moments that were real clicking moments for me, and one was recognizing that That's the same message. These are just different metaphors for exactly the same thing, that entering into life is entering into the kingdom. And we often think about John's message, and we talk this way in Christian circles, of eternal life. And I think we put the emphasis on the eternal. So when we think of that message, we think this is life forever in heaven or something. I've come to believe that I think the point of eternal life in John's message is more on the life side.
2: And life, and that, life that it's abundantly, eternal. right? Yeah. It's
0: life. Yeah, John 10.10. 10. <laughs> I've come that I have life and life. That's human flourishing. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, this these are just two different metaphors for the exact same thing that's in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the New Testament, that God is about restoring humanity to fullness of life. And, of course, that's mm-hmm. how the story of the New Testament ends as well, right? Yes. Um, with the book of Revelation, so hope that makes sense.
2: Yeah, and I think you know, as as somebody, I spend a lot of time in the Torah, and Ellen Cherry knows the Torah very well uh, in, in Hebrew, um but I think if you take that question of the individual and uh, the responsibility of the community and the individual and the human flourishing, and just walk even through the the legal code, you realize mm-hmm. what it would be like to actually keep the Torah involves both the individual's integrity and virtue and and the community. It's all bound sure. in together. So, I, yeah, I could see when you started talking about the Torah in the second half of the book, I could. I could very easily make the connections. Um,
0: I probably didn't do enough with that. That's that's a good point. I was focusing more on the wisdom literature aspect, but that's I totally agree. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, I,
2: I happen to think the wisdom and the uh, the Torah are probably intimately connected, uh, maybe I in controversial I agree ways. Well. But, um, <laughs> no, okay. no, I agree. so we're gonna do a speed round here. Uh, my fellow yep. on script interviewers do this, so this is my first one. Okay. I figured it'd be it'd be good to practice with you. So a few questions, short answers, keep your answers as short as possible. Um, And uh, I think I know the answer to this first question uh, because uh, we've listened to a little bit of Monty Python here and on page 113, you talk about uh, filmic recreations and different types Mm -hmm. of artistic recreations. uh, And you say, quote, these recreations have their own merits. Uh, Do you still stand by that statement?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I actually show lots of films in my classes because uh, every film is no different than a reading you and I do. There are lots of decisions we make, consciously or unconsciously. Yeah. Excellent.
2: Okay. Uh, paper or plastic? Uh, paper. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Uh, who was most influential in, in teaching you how to teach others? Hmm. Or maybe uh, I could say what was most influential?
0: Yeah. Genetics. <laughs> so uh, my uh my father, who died when I was very young, uh I guess I look exactly like him, and I still hear reports of that he was a very effective beloved teacher, and I hope mm-hmm. I can be half the man he was and so i don't know i I come from a family of all teachers, so I think it's just in me i'm not sure oh okay <laughs> you know, but...
2: genetics, nature, and nurture there okay there you go um what is the most obscure Scottish word that you know?
0: Uh I don't know, obscure, but one that I always think of is of course what you will soon be experiencing, and that's the har, the <laughs> the rolling the rolling fog off the sea that makes November through February uh the reason why whiskey comes from Scotland, right? <laughs> in the sense of it's a very depressing time, right, for everyone.
2: Yes. So. By the way, that is it's it's we would say that the whore, uh, but in Scotland they say the har. That's right. Yeah, that's funny because the one Do I always think that? of. Do we have that? Yeah, I mean, it's an old English we have, term, yeah.
0: Ah, I didn't realize that. Okay. Um,
2: the, the one I always think of is drich, which is this ah, of course, onomatopoeia yeah. word too. for, it it's almost exactly describes what the weather is like when it's not so a-
0: Angle bright. Angling rain coming yes. at you in the dark, when, right? Yeah. Yes. Um,
2: so who would you say, uh, or maybe what ha- would you say has been most influential in uh, helping you to write well as a scholar?
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I teach a, I teach academic writing here at the seminary for our PhD students. And the thing I regularly say is, um, the great scholars are on the other side of complexity. And I think an example of that would be somebody like Richard Baucom. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when you read him, you realize he's saying very profound and often eye opening things, but it's so simple you get to the end of what he's saying, you go, of course, why did I not see that before? You know? Right. And so I often talk about in academic writing that on this side of complexity is simplistic on the other side of complexity is simple. And that's what you're going for hmm. is your trying to you need to understand the complexity of the issues but a great writer makes the writing easy to read or the butter river as i often describe it you want to be float you want to rot an author to make you feel like you're floating down a river of butter and it's just a t- total joy right so a lot of great scholars like uh, richard bacham who again are on the other side of complexity um i think are very easy to read I'm trying to think who else i would put in that category um i bet if you suggested some people i, I mean richard hayes would be in that category too but if you suggested some people, I'm sure I could affirm those as well. My
2: I will suggest nothing, now, but uh, okay.
0: Um, no, it's uh,
2: it's it's funny because um, it, it is a task, and it, you know, and I I'm becoming more and more convicted that alongside our monographs, we need to write more accessible works for our own thinking, um, and that if we mm-hmm. believe what we said in monographs is of value, that it you know that it should go further than just. The tiny circle of people who will read those monographs,
0: right? And you're doing that. I mean, you're you. I'm jealous. In fact, I set out to write a very short book on the Sermon on the Mount,
2: it's and I wrote a long. 350 page. Is it 350
0: uh, pages? Okay, uh, it's getting there. Well,
2: but it, it did. That's flow. my goal. It was like butter. It,
0: good. That's what I'm going for. It reads like a novel.
2: Yes.
0: Actually, yeah. I, I am really trying to write a short book now called Jesus the Philosopher, and uh, it's making an argument. Uh, for why everything Drew Johnson has ever said is wrong. That's my first <laughs> thesis. And then secondly, uh, that this is an important image to recapture f- uh, for regular people, you know, not just scholars. So.
2: Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Back more to the serious side of the interview. Um, I, uh, I really appreciated, uh, you know, there's a couple of um, clicking moments for me as well uh, that I appreciated. And one of them was your discussion of the, kind of the inner outer motif going on, what's going on inside of you and how that shows on the outside, mm-hmm. and how you connected that to Jesus' use of the hypocrite. So we think of hypocrite as somebody who says one thing and does another. Uh, but you think that's more pointed than that, that there's a more specific Mm. domain of hypocrite. Uh, so maybe you could connect those together. What the inner outer theme has to do with the hypocrite.
0: Yeah, that's great. I'm glad that was helpful for you. Um, yeah, and I, and just to affirm, I think the way we use hypocrite is also wrong in the Bible that someone who says something and does something differently, you know, a double life, uh is certainly a hypocrite. It's just that's not actually what Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount anyways in Matthew hmm. means by hypocrite. He means by hypocrite uh someone who's actually doing lots of good things. And we always have to remember the Pharisees were good guys. I mean they they were uh, in general, I'm sure there were bad apples like there isn't any group, but they were conservative. Uh, faithful torah believing torah following uh conservative people of their day, and they were morally upright and it, from what we can tell they weren't largely involved in having affairs and killing each other and weren't living debauched lives and so yet it's clearly these are the people that Jesus is conflicting with the most and often calls them hypocrites, especially in chapter twenty three of matthew and it becomes really clear when you read the sermon that what he means by that is to can't do better than quote Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Or this uh you think of Jeremiah and the idea of having feasts and festivals but not caring for the poor not really loving people from the heart. Uh, Hosea six, six, which is a Matthew favorite as well. Yeah. I desire mercy or compassion towards others is what I think what that means, and not just the sacrificial system. So I think uh in Matthew, Jesus is really pushing people of his own day and it comes right down to you and me today as well because we're this is a universal human problem that is that it's very easy to make our faith and our religion external only and not pay attention to the inner person and uh, that of course in hebrew and greek the metaphor for inner person is heart not uh it's a little different than in english english heart means primarily emotions Mm -hmm. but in Hebrew and Greek, the metaf- the body metaphor there means who you are on the inside, who you really are. And so, I mean, I just find that that's exactly the same message of the prophets. So in that sense, Jesus isn't saying anything new, but it's so pointed and so powerful uh, to understand that that's what hypocrisy is. Having a morally righteous life that inside is actually full of disorientation toward God. A mm. uh, whitewashed tombs is yeah. a good example.
2: You know, I feel like when I first came, came into Christianity when I was around twenty years old. This was in the the early nineteen nineties. Um, I feel like that described not not a lot of the people, but the kind of you know there was a sense of if you do these outward acts, if you look this yeah. way, you act this way, you're a Christian. You know, right? I do feel like now though, I work with a lot of eighteen to twenty five year olds. It's almost flipped now. Where,
1: oh <laughs> right. no! As long
2: as I'm good on the inside, then it doesn't matter what yeah. I do with my body. And I'm almost having to convince them of the like yeah. your 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 heart. You think your heart is close to me, but your body is far from me. You know that kind of <laughs> uh,
1: thing. So
2: I think the critique still holds. I mean, I think the sermon still no, works that's great in though. reverse.
0: Well, you know that I, that's really a great observation. And the balance to that that I always say is is twofold. One is that. There's a place for duty on the way to virtue, mm. that is if virtue is the whole person where your reasoning, your affections, and your actions are aligned with each other, that's what virtue is it's wholeness, it's harmony, it's teleosity. If that's a virtue is there's still a place for doing on the way to get there, mm-hmm. and the reason is the second thing is precisely because some of a lot of your excellent work has shown as we do, we become habituation matters. The, the choices we make and the habits we align ourselves with form us to be a certain kind of person. And so the idea that you could have a heart without a body that's connected is just as foolish as the other direction of having a body that's not connected to the heart. So Amen. that's a good insight that you're
2: pointing out today. Um I have a hard question for you, Jonathan. Um, and I, I'm wondered if you've ever heard this question before. Okay. Why is the Sermon on the Mount not in the other Gospels? But even though you can make the case that a part of it is in uh, Luke, but why why does it appear why does it only appear in this robust form in matthew I don't think anybody has a- actually access that
0: that way <laughs> um good uh so uh, again, it is important to note that quite a few bits of it are in Luke um but not in any kind of the structured way um let's see for Mark uh, so i'll try to take him in order. I think Mark. Is a teaching gospel, but not in the same way that Matthew is. Um, I mean, he's got teaching, but Mark's goal seems to be on the biographical side of who is this man Jesus and presenting him in a kind of very stark roaring lion in your face, throat punch kind of way, you know, and so he has teaching, but it's not the focus. Um, for John, as I've already kind of mentioned, I think he has a whole different thing going on in the sense that he's wanting to invite Jesus into human flourishing, people into human flourishing through Jesus, but putting it in a kind of low shelf way, simultaneously low shelf with his language, as well as the highest profound theological shelf. Mm-hmm. Luke, again, has some, but I guess I'd, I'd bring it down to this, is that uh, two things. One, Matthew is the most highly structured of our Gospels. He's not the best storyteller. But a lot of Matthew scholars and others have pointed out, and maybe it would just be Matthew scholars that would say this, but a lot of uh, gospel scholars have pointed out that Matthew really cares about structuring his book in very detailed ways. And one of the most obvious ways is that he gives us five major discourses, five major teaching blocks. This is a common thing that's known about Matthew once you start studying it. So the Sermon on the Mount is the first of those, but you have four others. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, and this is some more recent connections I've been making on this myself, is the big. I I think Matthew is quite keen on presenting Jesus as the true philosopher of the world. Um, and you're gonna we're going to see this theme is picked up in the Church Fathers right from the beginning, Justin Martyr and following Chrysostom and everyone in between, Augustine, that Jesus is the one who's offering the true way of being in the world, just like a, a sage in the Jewish tradition would or a philosopher in the Greek tradition. And the way the discourses and the Sermon on the Mount relates to that is this, is that one of the things that you do in the philosophical and really even the rabbinic tradition uh, is that you present collections of a, the master's teachings mm-hmm. on a topic, a topos in, and the technical term for it was an epitome. And so you could collect together Plato's teachings or Socrates' teachings into an epitome that wasn't the magnum opus of what the, it wasn't everything the philosopher was teaching, the master, but it was a kind of one stop shop on a topos or a topic that you could memorize. And that you could keep going back to as you sought to become a better disciple, as you've, you know, had a fight with your spouse or as you had an unjust situation at work, or as you faced a critical decision about allegiance to the state versus God, whatever, and every situation in between, you have that memorized epitome where you can reflect, what did the master teach? How would the master have responded to this? Did the master say anything that would apply to my situation? And I think Matthew, who's very clearly wanting to form disciples, he presents Jesus with these five major epitomes that provide you five topoi or topics on which a disciple can orient his or her life as they grow in wisdom. And after all, that's how Matthew ends. The whole point is that we're to make disciples of every people group in the world. And how do you do that? By reading his book and seeing what Jesus said and did, and then how we too can model our lives on him. So Mm -hmm. that's probably how I would... Try to get at an answer of why Matthew particularly has crafted this beautiful collections of teachings, this collection of teachings from Jesus and put it into this memorizable epitome how 's that strike you?
2: Yeah, I think that ties right into the the very next question I had, uh, which is now you can start seeing um, both the similarities and the differences with Moses. so Moses is not presented as this master teacher he 's kind of presented yeah. as the leader who reluctantly stepped into the position. And who is repeating what the master teacher wants to say. Um, right. Whereas in the Gospels, and particularly you point out in, in Matthew, Jesus is presented as both uh, speaking authoritatively like God uh, or like Moses in that uh, behalf, but he, he is also clearly the one who's in charge, which causes the marveling at his authority and yeah. his teaching. So you had this quote, which I loved this little line. Um, you said that Jesus, quote, is speaking as the Mosaic Messiah and delivering Messianic Torah. Uh, so anybody who's read the Hebrew Bible knows there's no such thing as a Mosaic Messiah. Um, and there's no such thing as a Messianic Torah. So you're doing something there. Maybe you, you could explain the connections between Moses and, and Matthew and, and Jesus and, and why you think that's going on.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's not a bad line. I didn't remember writing that, but I affirm it. That sounds good. Bless are the cheesemakers. Awesome. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I guess I probably meant by that and mean by that, uh, that the Messiah obviously is Davidic and, you know, prophetic in a lot of ways, but one of the ways that we understand Jesus in the New Testament, the gospel writers want us to, is that he is a prophet like Moses. I mean, you say what you just said about Moses is true, but as you also well know that He's largely presented as a prophet, not just a leader, but a you know, mm-hmm. he's a prophet. And the end of Deuteronomy, the great hope is that there's a prophet like Moses will rise. So I think that's probably what I was trying to get at by saying a mosaic Messiah. Is that what I said, mosaic Messiah? Yeah, and I think and, you know
2: Deuteronomy 18 is quoted in the Transfiguration, right? That I'll yeah. raise up another prophet, listen to him, and yeah, yeah it's very so important. the connections are there.
0: Yeah. And Messianic Torah, I'm at. Uh, I'll just. Say how I, what I often say in class is that, um, I think Jesus's approach to Torah, say in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first part of it, right? After the Beatitudes, the body, it's you've heard it said and I say to you. And I describe that as not antitheses, but exegeses that, that Jesus is exegeting Torah. And I think his exegesis can be described as both continuous and discontinuous with the Hebrew scriptures themselves. And I mean by that, Uh, that what he's saying is actually exactly what God has always cared about in Torah and in the prophetic message. God never related to his people by saying, I don't care if your hearts are far from me. Just do what I said. It'll be fine. Right. Or, you know, a kind of voluntaristic or Kantian deontological ethics. You do what's right because I told you to do what's Mm -hmm. right. Deal with it or something. Or or if you just do what's right, that's its own reward.
2: None of that's Although we can find many Christians presenting God that way.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If God said it, suck it up and do mm-hmm. it or something. That's our kind of ethics. I, I, that kind of volunteerism is totally inconvincing to me. And again, Ellen Cherry has been one person who's helped me think through this, I think. But the idea is that God, um that what God has said all throughout Scripture, Jesus says the same thing. God sees and cares about the heart. He wants to form you to be a certain kind of people. That Forming of a people is, an, we can call it an imitative ethics, that the basis of ethics is that we're imitating God. He is holy, Leviticus 19 and 20, therefore we should be holy, Matthew five forty eight. he is teleos, he's whole, we should be whole, that all throughout. So it's, con- Jesus' teaching is continuous with the Hebrew scriptures. And at the same time, it's discontinuous. And the discontinuity is not in content, but it's in covenant. Mm -hmm. So that because Jesus is presenting himself as bringing about the new covenant, where he is the arbiter of that, he is the Messiah, uh, that results in some discontinuity. And I'm glad to get help from the Apostle Paul in Galatians here in the way that in a short order he describes it, and that is that the new covenant that Jesus has brought about is actually the renewal and consummation of the Abrahamic covenant. And that Paul's argument is that the Abrahamic covenant came to God's people before there were Jew or Greek. And so the Mosaic covenant is good and it's beautiful and it's wonderful, but it's reached its point, which is to raise up a Jewish Messiah who brings life to all people, just like Abraham himself came to faith uh, by faith to God before he was a Jew. And I it'd be really helpful for me to talk with a Jewish person. I've not done that and and see if they're uh if they would accept that as a reading, not particularly about Jesus, but even that idea that the Abrahamic covenant, uh, that's its goal. I don't know the answer. I, I don't right. want to be disrespectful or misrepresentative, but I, I think that's what Paul seems to be arguing. And so I that's helpful for me when I read the Sermon on the Mount to understand that What Jesus is teaching is not radically new in the sense that, oh, God used to just care about your body. Now he also cares about your heart. He's up in the ante. No, he's saying the exact same thing God has always said. The difference is that Jesus is the arbiter of a new covenant, which means that now who the people of God are is defined not by Torah observance per se or Sanhedrin submission or, uh, uh, Listen to the scribes and Pharisees purity laws, but it's how you respond to the arbiter of the law, Jesus himself. So that continuity, discontinuity is probably what I, what's underneath that idea of a messianic Torah. Hmm. I, I would imagine what I was trying to say.
2: Yeah, no, that's good. So, and I think, you know, to be fair, even within uh, the book of Acts and, and later in the epistles, uh, Jewish Jesus followers were still wrestling with how to, how the continuity and discontinuity absolutely. play, right? Totally. How, to, how to live this out. And-
0: and today, I mean, this is the difference between a dispensationalist mm-hmm. and a covenantal, a new covenantal, all yeah. that, you know, for sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, that's that's really good. And I, I want to commend readers that when you do buy this book, uh, I, I think the uh, the section on the build up uh, to the Sermon on the Mount and the connections between Moses and Jesus there are uh, I've known about a lot of those from my work in Mark, um, but uh, it was kind of mind blowing how how it really is this kind of parallel narrative that brings you into the sermon. Mm-hmm and presents jesus in this new way so um okay i have uh before we do our final speed round i I have one more question um and it's about what you call the suffering flourishing paradox in the sermon on the mount and i i think that's really important for uh people who hear this uh just to think about before they buy the book and read it for themselves um so what's the paradox and why is it so important
0: so if if the reason you're buying the Sermon on the Mountain Human Flourishing is because you want to get rich quick scheme, right? This isn't probably going to be encouraging what I'm about to oh, say. Well. Yeah. Uh, it actually relates to a question that I never, that you asked earlier, that I didn't fully answer. And that is how Jesus's virtue ethics are maybe different from uh, his own context, especially the Greek one. And I think that's really important. And it really sits on this issue. And that is that while I think that the whole Bible's engine or type of ethics imitative virtue ethics is the same the bibles and the greek philosophical tradition particularly aristotle while i think the engine is the same the content uh, the the form is somewhat different and it precisely sits on this and that is that jesus is describing flourishing now as entailing suffering and that's the great paradox of i think the christian vision to some degree it's the jewish Experience and vision as well, but I think maybe it's even more explicit in Christianity. And I think first Peter is a really easy place to see this in short form that basically to be a Christian is to be a elected sojourner. And those first words of first Peter is such a paradoxical combination that you're one of the elect of God. You're the chosen, blessed, happy, flourishing shalom and yet landed. You have land. That's part of the promise of being elect. And yet you're a. Sojourning and suffering and, uh, awaiting your consummation. Million dollar re- or millionaire refugees is sometimes how I paraphrase mm. first Peter one, you know. So they're in a refugee camp with this inheritance awaiting you, but you have to wait to get to it. And I think that's what the Beatitudes are, um, for. Uh, Matthew's Sermon on the Mount as well, that Jesus is teaching there is true human flourishing and he's speaking right into that world of what true human flourishing is, but what he says is shocking because it's not flourishing are the ones who always get justice or flourishing are the ones who uh, have a large family, flourishing are the ones whose parents are really proud of them or flourishing, and there's a million things we might say, the flourishing statements he gives, the macarisms, the beatitudes, the asherisms are Uh, All paradoxical. Mm. Um, They are um, poverty of spirit, um, persecuted for righteousness sake, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's not a positive thing. That's not talking about imputation. That's saying... You, the Christian is the one who's longing for God to bring justice to the world my, in my own life as well as in the life of others to stop sex trafficking, to bring it into divorce and cancer and, and death and abuse and all these things. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's not a, that's not a positive experience. That's a painful place to be. Um, the only beatitude that has anything that's close to positive is the pure in heart. And it's, it's a very interesting one and I never know exactly what to think about it, but it's the one that the church fathers harped in on the most because it, the answer to it is that those people see God. And for the pre-modern tradition, most throughout most of Christian history, seeing God is a crucial idea that we don't really think much about anymore, but that was at the core. Hmm. And this is where this language of a beatific vision comes from, the idea of seeing God as the place of true happiness. But all the other beatitudes are radically negative statements. And that's why, as I'm sure you picked up from the book, why I translate them flourishing are X because, and then the answer after the because is why Jesus is not a total nutball. In other words, why he's not just crazy. For him to say flourishing of the poor in spirit, that's crazy mm-hmm. talk. Because, he says, theirs is actually the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are the ones hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Why is that not crazy? Because they'll actually be satisfied. Flourishing are the mourners. Why is that? How could that be? Because they will be comforted. And it goes on and on. And I think that's the paradox. And of course, the climactic moment of it is the ninth beatitude, which is an expansion of the eighth beatitude. Flourishing are you whenever people revile and slander and speak all kinds of evil things against you. What? (laughs) That's crazy. Because you know, rejoice and be glad that's actually how people have treated the prophets. Your reward is great in heaven mm-hmm. I mean that's so that's what I'm trying to get at with this flourishing is reality, but as we await God's coming kingdom, it entails suffering, and that's what it means to be a Christian I really think, yeah,
2: I think just hearing that explanation just goes back to that word blessed, which blessed is so punctiliar and now and and judgeable mm-hmm. and and put it in that flourishing long range trajectory means that any any prosperity I might have right now or any suffering I might have not, right now is not what determines whether I'm flourishing or not. Um, although there is this whole yeah. other interesting question of how do you know if you're flourishing or not, which I know is what my students right. would ask me if we were talking <laughs> about this, uh, which is a topic for another time. Um, okay, right. so I have uh, the final speed round here. Um, and you're just going to have to stay with me because I try to get as creative as I possibly could. So All we're right. now going to see the extents of my creativity. Okay, question one. And again, you're going to try and keep it quick here. And I'm looking at you, Matthew Bates, with this question. Uh, what is your favorite kind of coleslaw, creamy or vinegar, and how do you eat it, on the side or on top of something?
0: Uh oh boy, I'd say creamy, and I really like it with a, a spicy barbecue. Man,
2: I am. Sandwich. I am. That's exactly what I would have said. We are.
0: Nice. What does Matthew Bates say? He hates coleslaw hates or coleslaw. something. Special uh-huh. place okay. in shale in face, for uh,
2: people who hate coleslaw. Exactly. No flourishing. <laughs> <at> all. <laughs> all right. Um, okay. If doctoral students could all understand one thing before they began their studies, if you could just snap your fingers and, and they all understand some concept or something about themselves maybe even, uh, what would you wish mm-hmm. that they could understand before they began their doctoral work?
0: Yeah. Uh, boy, lots of things, but I'll just go with this one. Uh, that... You can behave intellectually, virtuously, or vicefully, just like you can in your body. That the life of the mind has a moral element to it, and we need to pursue being intellectually virtuous.
2: Wow, that hurts.
0: I'm thinking of you. I'm
2: looking at you, Drew Johnson. <laughs> I had to look down at the floor while you <laughs> was saying that. Okay, this is an age check to see if you were had a pulse and paying attention in the 1980s. Um, if a kid okay. says, and now I know... Uh, what would be the expected liturgical response from G.I. Joe? Oh, my goodness. So the first half is, uh, and now I know, I, and the second half is? I have
0: no <laughs> idea. Is that the answer?
2: <laughs> no. I quite, am busted. It's quite the opposite. It's, and knowing is half the battle.
0: Nice. Wow. I failed that. Can we still be friends? We'll
2: try. Well, the next question right. was going to be if knowing is half the battle, what's the other half? But I feel like it's all wasted.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna wah, okay. Wah, wah.
2: Since you uh, deal with ethics so much in this book, I'm going to throw you this standard analytic ethics problem: the trolley problem. Do you, Are you? Have you worked out any trolley problems before? You aware of the trolley problem?
0: No, I'm just a New Testament scholar trapped. Oh. No. In- I'm a philosopher trapped in a New Testament well, body, as I always let say. me
2: let me give you a. Uh, I'll give you one instance that you can answer quickly here. This is supposed to be a speed round. Okay. If you saw a trolley heading towards the Internet, how many kittens would you have to throw in front of it to make the trolley stop?
0: Hmm. Uh, 42, That's <laughs> the answer to like
2: – From uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So you did have a pulse in the you 80s. You have to say the illusion yeah. – Exactly, if,
0: but if you have to identify the illusion, you're a loser. That's what we all Look, know. Come on, man. We
2: have some kids listening at home, so I gotta explain this stuff right, to them. All right, fair enough. Uh, okay, final question. Um, if you, oh, by the way, the trolley problem is when, uh, you, like, you're on a bridge overlooking a runaway trolley, and you got yep. a person next to you. Yep. Oh, yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Right. Or dark, dark night. Some degree okay I mean that 's not exactly the same yeah. thing, but the joker yeah. and the the fairy and
2: okay, that. so here 's your final trolley problem. Um, if okay. you saw a trolley heading towards a major concept or assumption in biblical studies like uncontrollably, what concept or assumption about biblical studies or maybe that biblical scholars make would you you know would be tempted to say, "Let it roll you wouldn 't even try to stop it oh my, oh my. no we don 't want people. That's awesome. Uh, we just want like an idea, an idea. Yeah. Uh, well,
0: you know, just because it's fresh from this, uh, the idea that somehow grace and virtue are opposites in enemies, mm-hmm. you know, and enemies. Yeah, I think that's one of my arguments in this book is that uh, to be to understand Christianity as being formed to be a certain kind of person is in no way the opposite or in in any kind of conflict with the idea of god's radical kind emanating and originating grace towards us i think we need both all right so
2: very good well that's all we have is anything you else you want to add
0: um this has been awesome thanks i really appreciate it and uh i love to dialogue about these ideas um this book is very imperfect, and I'm aware. My uncle always said, "You never finish writing a book; you just quit at some point." And so that's true. how I feel about this book: is that uh, I've got, you know, things I'm very proud of it about, but I'm very aware that I continue to grow in my knowledge, and and uh, so it's a delight to get to talk about these
2: things. Thank well, you. thank you for lending your time and your expertise to us at Von Script That's all for now. This is Drew Johnson from St. Andrews, Scotland. Speaking with Jonathan T. Pennington of uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on Scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at OnScript.study/donate.